came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Jason. Hello, Xenia. <laughs> oh, wow, that, that wasn't enthusiastic, hello. <laughs> Mine was kind of a bit low key. Uh, okay, fine. Hello, hello. Much more enthusiastic. So I've been, I've been thinking. I've been, I've been thinking. You know, this is never a good start to the sentence, right? I've been thinking. Um, it could go, it could go a lot of different ways. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've been discussing this over the summer so much, right? Listen, why don't we have a good intellectual debate in disaster studies? Why are we? So either reject papers or hate them or kind of absolutely refuse to debate with each other. Um, why is that? Tom? Wow, that's a good question. I think it's because people are so worried about their, about losing face, about their reputation, um, focus on like career progression and prestige and like worried about their partnerships and donors. And a lot of people who... Like in the past, you know, we've been talking about this. A lot of disaster scholars in the past have had really fiery debates with each other mm, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, critiqued each other's work in public. Like, sure, we get some critique in private and in peer review, but very, very often we don't see this in public because uh-huh. people just don't say things anymore. And um, I think a lot of it is just around like the the fact that people are are worried about the, the their reputation, reputation of the organization, um, not offending people who are funding research or who are inf- influencing funding decisions. Like, yeah, I agree with you. And it's, it's kind of sad, right? Because I, as, as when I was growing up and, you know, when I was at the university, you know, when you read like philosophy, right? And we, you read the start of academia if you wish especially the greek philosophy it was all about debate and being able to like um explain your point of view right through um, orator skills and things like that and now we just don't do it anymore but i also wonder whether we're not training academics to debate anymore you can you sort of agree or disagree but you don't know how to express this that disagreement in a non-provocative, I guess, way, right? And also, we don't know how to accept the critique, maybe. I don't know. It just upsets me. I wish I wish we were able to debate more and better because, you know, humanities do so well, mm. yet we are not able to do it. But anyway, the reason I'm asking you today because uh, it's because today we are going to talk about two um, things, concepts, processes, um, recovery and reconstruction that are very much debatable, and I wish there were more conversations about this. Um, over the past few months, we've been thinking and writing quite a lot about building back better. Um, my favorite slogan, right? A kind of motto that is um, 
really well known to all disaster scholars, but perhaps uh, was pretty new when it became quite popular last summer, I think, right? And well, since then, it's been used and abused by various politicians mm -hmm. as they were talking about post-COVID world. Um, and of course, you know, my comrade, West Chuk, our comrade, West Chuk and I, um, had, had had lots of joyful conversations and, you know, the article is finally out now in disaster. So very exciting. Very anyway, joyful. This episode very joyful. Is very joyful. This episode isn't about uh, my article or self-promotion. So let's go right. back. <laughs> let's go back to this. So very often when we talk about building back better, we kind of talk about it in a context of resilience and reconstruction. And I use both, you know, quotation marks for both resilience and reconstruction. And resilience and reconstruction is exactly what we're focusing on today. Yeah, this is going to be so great. So we're really excited to chat to some friends of ours who you already know from previous seasons, Dr. Danielle Rivera and Dr. Emmanuel Raju. Danielle joined us on season four to talk about coloniality and disaster. She's just been appointed as assistant professor of landscape architecture and environmental planning at Berkeley. And Emmanuel has joined us a few times. He's been with us from the start when we recorded one of our earliest episodes at the IREC conference in Florida in 2019. Emmanuel is an associate professor at the University of Copenhagen and director of the Copenhagen Center for Disaster Research, an interinstitutional research center at COPE that links disaster research and education. So welcome back, Danielle and Emmanuel. Yeah, thank you for having me back. Thank you so much. Hi, it's so nice to have you back again. It's always great talking to you. So um, I'll start with an easy question to both of you. Um, I guess, you know, we, we all know that resilience and recovery are pretty contested and we, we've discussed this before. Um, and all four of us have spent, you know, hundreds of hours listening or reading about yet another definition of resilience or yet another understanding of recovery and, you know, what these concepts mean in terms of kind of measuring them and valuing them and whether we can measure them and blah, 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 all that, all that. But I guess, what we really see too often is that the normative take on both resilience and recovery implies a kind of physical process rather than a social process, right? And this physical process is very often limited to a certain time frame. So my question to you both, what are your takes on resilience and recovery? Danielle, let's start with you. Okay, wonderful. Um, so I, I, I definitely agree that Resilience in particular implies a physical process and therefore really shouldn't be applied to individuals and communities. And looking to a lot of uh, organizers around uh, climate change and environmental justice in the Gulf region, we can see why that's the case. So in particular, I love this now famous quote from Tracy Washington. She's an organizer with Louisiana Justice Institute uh, out of New Orleans. She stated, and this was shortly after Hurricane Katrina, uh, stop calling me resilient because every time you say, oh, they're resilient, that means you can do something else to me. I am not resilient. And I think what Tracy Washington and other organizers uh, rightly point out across the Gulf of Mexico region is that particular communities, and oftentimes this is communities of color, are perpetually being placed in a position of resiliency 
basically a way of saddling them persistently with the negative impacts of repeated disasters. Mm -hmm. So Tracy Washington and others recognize that this repeated ask constitutes in itself an injustice. So for me, instead of asking what is needed to understand resiliency, I think it's more important to understand first how people relate to land. So how ecological processes need to become res resilient to acute shocks, but we need to separate that from the people and the communities that inhabit those regions. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Uh, let M go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is great. <laughs> I can keep ranting about this for you, yes. <laughs> Imagine, what do you think? Tell us you love resilience, uh, Yeah, I, I think, I think I, I, uh, Daniel went off to a great start, and I think I, I fully agree with what Daniel said. And um, I mean, over the years, I, some, I mean, I've been working with recovery almost for about more than 10 years now, and particularly most of my work was around the Indian Ocean tsunami in India and working with working in Nagapatnam in Tamil Nadu, which is one of the most affected areas um, after the tsunami. Um, Build Back Better actually started off very much within sort of this disaster world when the Indian, after the Indian Ocean tsunami. And we've heard it a lot actually around the tsunami time as well. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, I've ranted about this quite a lot about Build Back Better. I mean, how the word... <laughs> yeah, so... And... Honestly, I think f for me, okay, where do I start, right? So it's, uh, for me, it, two things. One is I think that every time we talk about uh, recovery, I think resilience is is very often getting on those same lines, exactly the same critique and problems we had with recovery. When we speak of resilience in a recovery context, it's the same problems all over again. We speak about physical processes. We speak mm -hmm. about about built infrastructure we speak about we speak about anything to do with construction right the word reconstruction somehow and and we're not talking about these larger processes that we of why these disasters occur why do these disasters happen which is where the recovery should address questions of power questions of vulnerability all of these issues which yeah. we keep coming back to over and over again if we look at conceptually if we look at definitions of resilience i mean and i think two things that i want to bring today one thing is transformation and the other thing is learning which is central to when we look at resilience but unfortunately those are two things that never happen um at least in my own work when i've when i've seen this i mean that larger transformation of systems processes institutions never takes place um and and these two really need to come together somehow right and i'm and i'm very tired um when we in the sense of every time and sometimes very angry as well when i listen to someone saying um people local communities have capacities and they're very resilient yes people have capacities people bounce back people come back on their feet again but that doesn't mean that we let these disasters occur again and again and again because we're not addressing the fundamental problem of why these disasters occur which is why recovery is back again to square one always I think you're absolutely right in saying that, um, you know, I, I, I'm not quite, never quite sure what it is we should be recovering from, right? Um, and shouldn't we 
really be focusing on kind of recovering from oppression um, and marginalization. But of course, that that never happens, right? Yeah, and you're right, Ksenia. And, and and the fact that recovery as much, I mean, recovery as much as it's social, it's also a political process, right? It, it's it's bringing back all of these things. In recovery is about governance, which means that recovery is political, and nobody can dispute mm-hmm. that. At least I think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Danielle, I wanted to um, move to ask you a question, and it's about uh, your recent paper titled Design and Planning, Reintegration Through Shifting Values. And I want to read an excerpt from the paper. And I quote, ultimately, the simultaneous viewing of problems from design, humanities, and social science perspectives is what is needed to envision multiple and different worlds, past, future, and current. Existing spatial patterns and policy frameworks cannot fully and satisfactorily address issues like climate change and anti-Blackness. Instead, frameworks like abolition, decolonization, mitigation, and adaptation all require new policy approaches, but also new models of understanding and transforming real reified space. This is the true wheelhouse of the designer. Um, and I, end quote. And I love this. And um, just wanted to ask you, how do we, how do we mainstream and integrate these kind of values and ideas and models into recovery processes? Yeah, so uh, this paper, I think, you know, just to kind of give some background on it first, uh, it really sought to address first a what I have seen and experienced as a longstanding rift mm-hmm. between planning and policy on the one hand and design professions like architecture, urban design, and landscape architecture on the other. And Often in addressing disasters and climate change, I think there's this presumed false dichotomy between these two different worlds. And I think what the paper fundamentally is trying to argue is that both are really necessary um, to really address uh, climate change uh, and climate-induced disasters. And so really what we need is a re- radical re-envisioning of how design and planning are working together to bridge issues like or uh, areas like policy governance um, to really think about this problem. Um, so I think as designers, we are taught to um, envision multiple futures. That's really sort of the basis of architecture and landscape architecture. If you think about it, it's always about how do you represent and conceive of something that doesn't yet exist. And you're trying to make that real or in some way visualize it or discuss it um, so that others can see what you're trying to envision for the future. And I think that's an extremely powerful skill. It's this like nimbleness of design that I think when paired with policy and governance, um, that's usually the focus of planning, these two things become a really powerful concoction that we really need to truly prepare for increased climate-induced disasters. and I think it's just that idea of envisioning possibly different futures and that sort of push from designers, but with that eye towards not just, you know, the sort of the physical space and how we're transforming it, but then how do we govern that? How does that interact with our social policies? These mm-hmm. are very powerful when combined. Um, and so, so the ways that this could become mainstream, something I think about all the time, actually. <laughs> um, on the one hand, I think designers, and I think this is widely recognized, so this isn't really um, very, you know, 
um, sort of earth shattering news to designers, but I think they need more training and planning and policy and governance to ground their work, um, or at least have a better understanding of when they're challenging status quo policies and governance structures. When are they challenging things versus when they aren't? That's something in the past that designers weren't really thinking about, just proposing ideas and not really understanding the structure that they were challenging. Um, so that's one thing. And then the second is I think designers, if they're able to accomplish that first task, can really be brought into important discussions surrounding policy and governance um, to really broaden our perspectives of what's possible. And I think the case that I cover in the paper, Design and Planning, uh, was about BC Workshop and Texas Housers and their Rapido project uh, in Texas. And the strength of that project was that it did exactly that. The designers were very grounded in what they were um, challenging in terms of policy, uh, disaster policy in Texas, uh, working with Texas Housers to actually make their physical design suggestions for post-disaster housing into something that politically and policy-wise could actually be adopted, not just by Texas, but we actually hope by FEMA and uh, by federal policy. Um, and so I think that really is the hope there is that we can mainstream these ideas by changing that relationship between designers and policymakers. Yeah, it makes me um, think just of the the point that Ksenia made in opening about um, you know the the often focus on physical processes rather than social processes. And in the opening episode of this season, we talked to David Pravat um, from he's an engineer, and um, he was just talking about the importance of um, his profession taking more of a social or adopting more of a social lens to problems, um, which is not the way that they're trained currently. Um, and I think you're getting at this as well. Like how do, how do design professionals um, go beyond the physical um, aspects of design and really engage with the sociopolitical processes and like causes of the risks that they're trying to mitigate. Yeah, certainly. I think, you know, the issues we're facing are at once social and physical. And I think sometimes we we try to separate these when we try to address the ecological causes of these problems. And I think that's um, a detriment to our ability to actually address other issues as well, like the social issues we were discussing earlier. Um, and so I think that's why designers are so important because they're trained to think about the physical environment. We really think in terms of space, but if we can get those individuals who are trained to think about space to also understand how that into intimately interacts with policy, and then I think that's where we can really make some headway in addressing climate change uh, across cities. Well, like that's where it really gets difficult because I find this when I have discussions with um, my students as well around the role of the professional um, in these situations, because a lot of a lot of people come to the table thinking, well, I need to rem remain apolitical about this. And so they're able to even take a kind of environmentalist approach to their practice and integrate the physical and the ecological, but they have a hard time integrating the um, socio-political side of this and the structural issues with 
society, which we all know on this call um, is foundational to how risk is created. Um, so, and so professionals are often trained in such a way and like put, and they, they worry about liability, you know, right. and they worry about their professional reputation and their um, pathways to promotion and how they're supposed to represent the organization and all of these things. And so the integrating that sociopolitical aspect is pretty scary. Yeah, certainly. And I think, you know, one of the things that I most love about BC Workshop, and they've been uh, a longstanding partner and sort of case study for me, is that they don't shy away from those discussions mm. and that they show a completely different model uh, for design that's not based in sort of the private sector, you know, private firm, but instead the nonprofit uh, or the civic sector. And mm -hmm. that's what's, I think, most exciting about their work is that they're trying to at once work with the local communities across Texas um, to handle issues of, you know, housing and, um, and community development. But on the other hand, they're not shying away from some of these larger issues as well. Um, and actually inserting themselves into political processes to actually make change. So I think that's hopefully a model that we can replicate. And I certainly think they hope can be replicated in other communities. And yeah, having these conversations is just so important. I guess dialogue is so important that we've We've talked about this before and we will come back to the idea of dialogue later in this season. Um, but Emmanuel, over to you now. So um, you all listeners know that I love reading stuff on this podcast, but I'm not going to do this today. You'll be happy to know. Um, instead, I'm going to delegate this responsibility to Emmanuel. Yay. Um, Emmanuel, so last year you wrote a poem called um, I Woke Up to the Waves. Would you, would you read it for us, please? Sure. Uh, thanks, Ksenia. I think you would, I think, I think um, people at IREC, or I think after that, were some of the first ones to listen to this. So, um, okay. Uh, I woke up to the waves, not in my backyard, but in my home. I woke up to the waves, not as the evening walk on the beach, but to see my own depart. They brought bread, they brought linen. They brought water in its cleanest form I have never seen. They brought linen I would never wear, bread my children don't eat. They left and came again when I woke up to the waves. The waves took my home, but why did I lay my foundation here? Nobody asked me why, but they brought me bread. Nobody asked me why only me. Nobody asked me why my neighbor, but they brought bread when I woke up to the waves. Democracy needed another term. They brought bread, but for a favor. This time for a ballot, even more bread and more promises. Promises I have heard, promises I have read, promises that didn't answer my woes. They came again when I woke up to the waves. Here they came again after the waves calmed, this time with news they are related about. You never had a real home. Here is a gift. Move to the new house. Remoteness matters. 
New jobs, new lives, I am told. Fears of my land like never before. They brought papers to sign. They came again before the waves with a new wave that they call recovery. To me, a new wave. Thank you so much. Thank you. This, this is great. Um, and I, I, I really, really love this poem. So thank you for, for reading this for us. And the reason I like it so much is because you really show how that recovery has long-term repercussions. And I don't think we take this into account. We don't talk about this enough, right? Because those who make decisions about recovery don't hear those who are supposed to be recovering. Why is that? You know, and, and how do we challenge that? Yeah. Um, thanks, Ksenia. And and actually, um, when I, I mean, it, it's it's with a lot of um, history and it's with a lot of memory. Um, many people talk about um, issues of, I think, what Daniel already raised in terms of land, water, rights, access to all of this. And at least what I've seen with little experience and, and people such as many people, people like Tony Oliver Smith, people like Ian Davis, who've been writing about recovery, resettlement have been have been talking about this for 30, 40 years now. Right. So this is not this is fairly not new, but we see some of these things happening in newer forms as well in terms of land, in terms of um, um, particularly recovery as opportunity for whom, but opportunity for, I mean, you know, you know what I mean, opportunity in terms of land grabbing or opportunity in terms of um, how resettlement affects, um, I mean, you know, building private hotels on a coastline and, and taking away indigenous rights and those kinds of things. Um, I wrote an article, I think, way back in 2013 on, on whose values matter in recovery. So is it the value of the state which says that it's important to protect the physical um, housing or is it the value of, of a local fisherman who says to me the coastline is the most important thing because if I lose my customary access to the coastline, then I lose everything because that is life and livelihood. Um, everything comes in one form to me, right? Um, and why, I mean, why is, again, I think I mentioned this earlier in the uh, here is, is what I'm saying is that why this happens over and over again is the fact that there is also this tendency that people continue to respond um, to the hazard and not really to the social processes of what causes these disasters. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I think we, we've seen this also during this COVID-19 pandemic as well. It's not, it's not very far. Like I'm, I'm currently trying to, and I've said, and when I'm having discussions with my students and I'm like, I say memory is very important. Memories matter. And these memories also highlight inequalities inequities in societies and i think that that's really at the heart of some of these recovery stories um which actually made me write this poem um and i've written one similar one when i was doing field work in india in 2009 again on issues of land and and recovery um so why do we not change and i think it's primarily because we people are afraid to talk about transformation larger transformation of of systems institutions and processes i think you know so you also raise a really important point in that recovery is kind of a, is a is a wonderful in quotation marks performative action right it's something that can be mm. sort of seen and demonstrated and i was just talking to a friend from nepal this morning 
and he was saying how in December this year there's going to be a conference um, in Nepal that will mark the end of the reconstruction post Gorka earthquake. And he was like, well, hmm. like who decided that this is the end? We, you know, we're, we're yeah. nowhere near, right? Uh, we're yeah. right at the beginning. But and and then after that there'll be there'll be nothing more. They, there'll be the end of conversation. Um, and how many those with power would benefit, right, or have been benefiting from these years of demonstrating how they're rebuilding and reconstructing mm. uh, instead of addressing um, the, the issues. And, and and these issues of land rights, these issues of water rights, access, I mean, name it, right, the, the list is endless. I mean, and, and these are not necessarily only recovery stories. And these stories somehow also are stories of the past that somehow come to light during disasters. So disasters is an opportunity, but for whom? Yeah, disaster is a story of destitution, right? It's not the story of a kind of sudden shock, so, yeah. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about root causes, right? And what we see as resilience building and reconstruction um, is that the root causes often get ignored, often not because they're forgotten, but because it makes sense not to address them. And this could be in order to maintain oppressive systems um, and where power comes into it. But also, I was just thinking, as you all were discussing there, because we as um researcher, as practitioner, as humanitarian organization, we need to be needed, right? And I, I think often we don't, uh, we don't challenge some of these normalized processes and systems because our, our long-term kind of the sustainability of our organization or our own job requires being needed. Um, so what needs to be changed in the way that we frame resilience and recovery if we're really going to commit to addressing root causes? And I want to ask both of you to respond to this. Maybe, um, Danielle, if you wouldn't mind going first. Yeah, certainly. Um, I'm so happy Em just talked about remembering and memory because I think that is really the most important thing that we can do to really address the question you've posed, Jason. So. I think remembering is the number one thing and how do you actually create an institutional structure uh, or perhaps different uh, processes and procedures that actually take under wing this idea mm -hmm. of memory. Um, and so one thing I noticed, you know, in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, um, many of the failures of the poor disaster recovery and reconstruction after Maria were very quickly forgotten as other equally uh, large and troublesome disasters occurred across the U.S. And so it often feels, especially right now in the U.S. with wildfires and hurricanes um, and earthquakes that we're forced to sort of flip from major disaster to major disaster. And sort of as a community, uh, can't really sit with localities and their histories to really see these perpetual issues uh, that they face that we talked about earlier. And as a result, we often lose that memory of disaster um, and are prone to seeing resilience where there's injustice, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and so with 
as with so many other forms of justice, I think really what's needed is to recognize those histories of oppressed communities, in this case, you know, relative to disaster, to really reveal the patterns of injustice that are emerging, which I think mm. is something M was uh, mentioning earlier as well. Um, but I think this happens, you know, on two scales. It can happen at a professional level. So as Jason was mentioning, I think a lot of our professional frameworks right now surrounding disaster sort of call for us to be needed in some way. But I think there are other ways that are equally important. I think we need both, you know, those who have that knowledge of disaster and policy at a grander scale, but also those like Tracy Washington and others like BC Workshop that actually sit with communities um, and become intimately familiar, familiar with their histories, with their physical spaces, with the individuals that make those communities great. Um, to have that institutional memory. And when you have those individuals, I think the community becomes that much more powerful and able to actually stop injustices from occurring and recurring uh, after disaster, which is what I've seen in South Texas with their organizing base. They're now knowledgeable, especially after Hurricane Dolly. Um, we saw in 2018 when they experienced widespread flooding that they were able to much more um, easily adapt to what was occurring and respond to institutional threats, um, make sure FEMA was actually giving aid, those kinds of issues, because they have that memory. Um, and I think FEMA recognizes this issue. FEMA plays a huge part in perpetuating injustices um, by seeing disaster events and not recognizing the histories of oppressed communities. Mm. Um, but this is something FEMA is beginning to grapple with, which I think is very interesting. They recently released a report to this effect, stating that they understand that they themselves perpetuate inequality in yeah. low-income communities of color in particular. And there's actually, I think, a public comment right now for people who want to say, well, what do we think FEMA is doing procedurally that is actually causing this problem. Um, so I think there's a shift occurring in the US, I hope, that will actually see us addressing these kind of root causes, um, understanding how memory is distorted, sometimes even weaponized mm -hmm. against low income communities of color in disaster processes. So um, lots of interesting things occurring on this uh, issue. I think, I think that what Daniel said is very encouraging. And I think I must say, re so recovery has a very developmental character to itself, right? And if, if we look at it conceptually as well, and when we talk about sort of this disaster development nexus, and, and recovery has the potential to bring that unique, op to bring this opportunity uh, somehow to align thinking, working paradigms, um, this, this conflict between disasters and development, somehow to sort of at least bring them to the table somehow. But these efforts mm. must primarily be oriented towards visions and values of people affected continuously over and over again by disasters. We very well know that it is the same people, the same communities that continue to be affected more than others very often. And we've seen this, even climate scholars as well have been talking about this. I mean, where is what is the kind of loss and damage that we see somehow, right? And 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 very often we focus only on the formal governance institution mechanisms, but we very often forget that this social, political, deliberate these processes, which are very often deliberate socio-political processes, are happening as invisible governance forms. For example, I mean issues of caste in India or Nepal. These are very often 
these are also visible and also invisible forms right which mm. which people don't recognize so i think governance itself has l- layers of formal and informal but also invisible processes and very recently we did a special issue on the politics of of disaster governance and we say that i mean we still to find a better word for it but right now we're saying there are three layers of governance the formal and informal but also the invisible um and and i think it's important to sort of remember the disasters contribute continuously to reshaping the landscape of of society environmentally geographically socially politically right but but how do we close that chasm that exists in these developmental um patterns in society and i think um that's where the fundamental problem lies and and where do we go from here um and and i think that easier said than done there are no shortcuts to this i mean recovery is long is is a is sometimes a very painful process for many people um like kasinia was saying i mean who marks the end of recovery for example what's happening in nepal as we see i mean yeah who who defines that that we've recovered right a new concept somehow that people have been working with recovery of the last few years is self recovery and that has also i mean even within disaster studies people haven't actually looked at it very deeply except a few scholars is people who recover on their own without any form of support but when that, but that's even more longer because financially as well people are dependent on themselves for example i think we celebrate um i mean th- there is a positive spin to sort of preparedness i mean if i have to say this more positively for example we celebrate the fact that we evacuated a million people um before a cyclone occurs yes i mean that that's a huge shift from where we were in the 90s and the 70s and the 80s moving a million people away saving a million lives yes but i'm also waiting to see when we actually move towards saying that the disaster actually caused as or the hazard actually did not become a disaster there was very minimal uh loss and damage from this you 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 know what i'm saying right in terms of um i i i I really wish that we're moving and marching towards that direction. You know, the uh, as I listen to to both uh, you and Danielle, it just it it seems like the, the most resilient thing is is kind of oppression right the most resilient <laughs> right. thing is the pro- disaster <laughs> the process of disaster making we shouldn't end on that note though i mean there is hope there is hope you know the concept of anti resilience as well and um shalanda baker's work um which again is connecting to some of these alternative framings that you're mentioning danielle and you know just contesting that assumption that um you know we need to build everyone's resilience so that they can cope within an unjust world rather than contesting the unjust world right yeah i think certainly i love the concept of of anti resilience and i feel like there are things that we can do as you know academics and certainly you know in the organizing world mm. to actually address these issues and i think you know as i was mentioning earlier this change with fema comes about from a specific set of studies that very painstakingly collected all kinds of data around FEMA aid over many many years across the US and showed systemically that FEMA 
is biased against low-income communities of color. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, so many others like, you know, Esther Sullivan and Andy Rumba, who have been showing very similarly how these issues are, you know, procedurally based in um, disaster governance. And so I think um, there are ways, you know, from the ground in academia to really um, push these issues and um, push for change as well. Well, we really appreciate the work that both of you are doing um, in this space and for sharing time with us today. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having us. I hope you'll come back again soon. I look forward to that. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You've been listening to Xenia Jason and us, Daniel Rivera. And Emmanuel Raju on Disasters Deconstructed podcast.